0: Guess what? We have a special sponsor for this episode.
1: Yes, this episode is sponsored by O'Reilly Media. The O'Reilly Velocity Conference is the best place to learn about continuous delivery, DevOps, operations, and performance. So if you want to build distributed systems and apps that stand up to today's technological challenges and customer expectations.
0: Oh, then you should go to the Velocity Conference. There's one in New York on October 1st through 4th. And there's some cool people speaking there, like my friends Karen Meyer and Neha Narula. Ines Sombra, she's at both of them. And Jessie Frizzell. Also, there's one in London, October 17th through 20, and that one looks even greater because Karen Bataram is speaking there. She's awesome. And Angie Jones and Anne Curry. And you should totally go. And and also, if you go to like velocityconf.com and register with code PCGTC, which is for PC greater than code then you can get to save 25%.
2: Hi, I'm Jamie Hampton, and welcome to Greater Than Code, like Uber, but for not being shitty. Uh, I'm here with a bunch of my friends today, (laughs) including the great Jessica Kerr. Thank you, Jamie. I am super happy to be here today
3: with Astrid County. Thank you, Jessica, and I'm really excited
1: to introduce my friend Janelle Klein.
4: Thank you, Astrid. And I'm here with my amazing co-host, Sam Livingston-Gray.
1: I'm having a fanboy moment today. If you follow me on Twitter, you probably know our guest already because I retweet him so damn much. Marco Rogers describes himself in his Twitter bio as, quote, web developer, movie buff, and pretty much the best guy you know, end quote. Interestingly, however, his LinkedIn profile shows his title as Director of Engineering, so you can be sure that we are going to get to the bottom of that. Marco, welcome to the show.
5: Hi, everybody. Thanks for having me.
1: So Marco, I guess one of the ways that we like to start out is by asking you, what is your superpower and how did you acquire it?
5: I think if I have a superpower, it's probably a little bit of a cheat and it's really just um, kind of thinking really fast on my feet, right? A lot of people, I think, you know, you kind of mentioned my kind of Twitter presence and I have people ask me all the time, like, do you like think through all these like amazing like tweet storms that you do? And I'm like, no, not at all. Like, it's really just like whatever the last (laughs) one was. If there's one that flows from that, then I write it down. And if I don't have any more thoughts, then I guess I'm done. And that's why I think Twitter works really well for me. It's something that I try to kind of admit to people because the only thing that I'm trying to do is work through issues out loud so that people can potentially follow along and maybe we can figure something out together, right? But I don't think my thoughts are more cogent than anyone else's. Uh, I just kind of have them a lot faster, I think, so I can go through more. It's really a volume thing that I'm going for.
1: <laughs> I mentioned that I retweet a lot of your stuff. And uh, part of that is because you're just so outspoken about lots of things, but especially social justice issues. I know you get pushback for that, but I'm wondering how much and how do you deal with it?
5: I think that I'm in a very kind of rarefied space uh, right at this moment. I think um, earlier kind of in that arc, and at, which I would say started You know, it was it kind of got kicked off by Ferguson and that whole thing. Right. I had talked a little during, you know, after uh, Trayvon Martin and, and his trial and stuff, but it was really Ferguson where I was like, we have to talk about this. And I found myself doing it a lot on Twitter and having people actually respond. But I think there was an arc where what I did a lot was argue with trolls on Twitter. And then I realized that that wasn't what I wanted for my life. And then uh, there was an (laughs) arc where... Imagine that. Yeah, I think there was a, a period where what I was really trying to do was reconcile being that outspoken and talking about controversial topics and how that played with my employer right? Because I mean, I think I've been really fortunate, but there's there's always a line. And I was definitely kind of wary of finding that line. But at this stage, I feel like I have. Uh, I found that line with kind of my public presence and with my kind of professional presence. And at this stage, I also have managed to avoid a lot of the kind of really most controversial conversations and, and really kind of stay in my own space and talk about things the way that I want to. So I think I've kind of managed to strike the right balance, right? Like the audience that kind of wants to hear what I have to say, they know how to find me, but I don't go looking for trouble nearly as much as I used to. So uh, I think it's, it's working out great for me right now.
1: Cool. We've talked a little bit on this show before about staying in your lane, which I think is a phrase you use fairly regularly. What does that mean to you?
5: I love that phrase. I think I picked it up from uh, from Tonawasis Coates, actually. Uh, I read Coates a lot, and I uh, I actually I read him a lot even before you know he wrote his great book and that article on reparations. Like he's kind of a big deal now, but um, I, I have been following him for a long time. So I kind of cribbed the way that I use it from him, which is that there are always a set of things that I think each person can speak to either from their own personal experience or their background and have a perspective that actually kind of is grounded in reality. And then there's a whole set of other things that we have opinions on, where those opinions are not actually informed <laughs> by very much at all and more so if we bring too much of our opinions into that space we're going to end up drowning out the people who do have that experience and we're creating noise that covers up signal and so when i say stay in my lane what i mean is that like i have opinions on everything all the time and i've learned to temper them and and recognize that like not all of them are as valid, right? Like Not all of them are coming from a place of being informed or having experience or really having anything really cogent to say about it. So maybe I should just like not say anything because there are people in that space who are going to do it much better than I am.
4: I was really intrigued by this idea of finding the line. Mm-hmm. And normally when you find the lines, it's with crossing over them and then realizing, oh, guess maybe I shouldn't have done that. Right. And I'm just wondering, um, I mean, this is something it seems like we all have to go through of figuring out where those boundaries are. And I'm just wondering, is there an experience that stands out to you where you felt like you were over that line and something you learned from it?
5: Oh, yeah, there's more than one. Uh, <laughs> uh, let me reach back. Uh, and try to pick out uh, some of the more salient ones. And, and it's directly related to kind of finding my lane, right? You know, there's a thing where, um, you know, like I said, I think what I've gotten good at is being able to have a conversation on Twitter that has more complexity and nuance than people are, are good at kind of right off the bat because Twitter is a very difficult medium to actually pull that off. And I think I'll admit freely that it's just practice that I think uh, has made me good at it, but Twitter is definitely a terrible medium for doing it. But I think what happens is that practice Practice also kind of gets you in a lot of trouble, right? And so what I would do is I would go into conversations and try to participate in a way that was not very helpful. Uh, And it was really just about kind of me making sure that like, I was a person who was seen as having these conversations and it was a lot of the wrong motivations. And like I said, my early arc, I think, taught me a lot about what we were trying to do here uh, and a lot of this kind of social justice uh, movement that we talk about and a lot of the conversations that we're having. Like, it's not just for the sake of conversation. We're actually trying to figure things out. And the people who are closest to that space are actually way more equipped to do that than randos uh, on the internet, which I am one. The one that I think sticks out to me the most is when I started to feel like I had the right to kind of speak for other underrepresented groups, just because I felt like I had come to understand some of what their issues were. And particularly the LGBTQ community and talking about gay people and trans people and like actually trying to speak in a space where their voices needed to be heard. And yet I was trying to do that thing where I articulate what their issues are. And it's not to say that, you know, I was doing a terrible job of it. Maybe I was, but that wasn't really the problem. The problem was I found myself at odds with people who were gay and were trying to tell me that, like, not only was I kind of, kind of getting it wrong, but that my input was just not necessary. And, you know, the conflict there was that the particular person that I think was trying to kind of push me back a little bit, I felt like they had made some 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 really problematic mistakes, Right. And so I was on that mission to be like, well, I need, I need you to understand where you've gone wrong. And we went through kind of a whole thing and like this person did not back down. And, and like it was really kind of uncomfortable even for me at towards the end. But I was in that space where like I could not like you couldn't check me. I was too good for that. Right. <laughs> and so that's also a really bad space to be in because you are also not in it to learn or to try to help or to elevate the right kind of signal. You're just in it to like not be wrong. And like, you know, uh, it took me a long time to kind of come around to that conclusion that I have some of those predilections and I really need to kind of resist them. And so here's what happened is we we had like a whole blowout. I had that thing where people were in my in my Twitter mentions going like what is happening right now like what are you doing and these are people that I kind of respect and I should be should have been listening to their input but I was like you kind of get into that internet fight mode and it was like it was really not a good look and so I, I kind of logged off I was like I right, am done for today and I had to had a really really long time to think about it uh, really slept on it and came back and you know it was kind of a, it came down to one like really simple thing. All the other stuff where I thought other people were wrong, it was still in my head. But the thing that I think I learned from that more than anything else is like none of that mattered if I was coming into a conversation where my input was not solicited, where I did not actually have the lived experience to actually represent any stance that mattered. Right. And that I was using whatever leverage I had to actually push back on the people who should have the voice in the conversation. And so I came back and I I really apologized to the several people who were involved. And I think my takeaway from that was a really big one, which is if there's a conversation that needs to be had in the LGBTQ community, it's not going to come from me. Like, I'm not the person who needs to have it. Right. And it's not even up to me to make sure that it happens by coming in and starting trouble. Right. Like, if it's going to happen, it's going to be because that community works it out for themselves. And like, I'm the problem here, right? Like I am the problem. And I had to like really kind of admit that regardless of what other things people had done that were quote unquote wrong, blah, 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 right? It's just not my conversation to have. It's not my lane. And so what I ended up doing is just getting really good at apologizing to people too, which is like a whole thing.
1: (laughs) That's a superpower right there.
5: Yeah. Oh, it is right. Like that's actually, I should move that one to the top. That's actually really, really important one is learning how to really apologize to people In a way that is authentic and actually kind of conveys that remorse for being wrong being wrong is okay i I think i have tweeted about this too
2: another thing that you've mentioned a couple times now that i think is kind of a superpower is this idea of like knowing when not to fight with internet trolls i like this like what you've said about making a conscious decision about that i think it's really important and you also mentioned like being in internet fight mode and like I can totally relate to that that's like a feeling that I've experienced and I wonder like what your advice would be about like learning when it might be okay to engage and when engaging is the wrong thing to do
5: Yeah no that's a that's a really great question right so um so one thing that I feel like is really important to do that seems obvious but it's not is to to really kind of establish what we mean by internet trolls right like we are talking about those people who have no intention of actually having a conversation, who have no intention of actually learning anything or changing their minds, and like are literally just there to start trouble and to try to get a rise out of people, right? And the trouble is that there there's another set of people who have some, some really bad and misguided ideas who are ignorant, um, but who are actually real humans. And the line between those two things is very, very thin, right? And so I think where I was at first was saying, like, I'm trying to figure out if there are real people behind these accounts. Uh, And that there's a real if there's a real conversation to be had, because, you know, we try to tell ourselves that we should be open to having these conversations, even with people that we disagree with. But the reality is there's a point of diminishing returns there. Right. Like I started to ask myself, like, what is the point? Am I trying to change somebody's mind? That's super unlikely. Right. Over over short 140 character texts like that's not going to happen. So if I'm not changing anybody's mind, um, if I'm not learning anything myself, it's like literally a waste of my time. And so once I got on that train of thought, it was like, okay, what is valuable about this? What is valuable about, you know, coming into this space uh, on Twitter? And it's that it's really for all the people who are potentially listening and potentially getting something out of maybe the thoughts that we're trying to put together in this conversation. And that has nothing at all to do with trolls and it doesn't even require arguing with people. Right. Like I think there's the lowest amount of real like informational value in that argument. Right. And instead, if you kind of look at where I am today, what I do is I mostly stay in my own space, which means uh, a lot less at replies to direct people and a lot less of kind of quote tweeting other people so as to kind of start a conversation. And instead, I just put these thoughts together myself on my own timeline for everybody who follows me and. I get a lot of engagement there, right? But like, you know, I kind of, I've been using this phrase, kind of go looking for trouble because I think we have this idea that there's a lot of value in the back and forth. And I've I've just essentially kind of discarded that. I think it's actually quite wrong. There's very little value in the back and forth. Like both sides are really entrenched. There's not a lot of movement on either side. And the only thing that it does is teach people how to argue and fight and like be really terrible. Like that's the only thing that you get out of it. And like, that's not what I wanted. So I just do a lot less. I still, I have my moments. I still fall into the trap sometimes, but you know, I just, I, I've come around to the idea that there's just not a lot of value there. And there's more so that there's much more value to be had by kind of talking with the people who are actually wanting to listen. Right. And there's not a lot of conflict there.
0: That's interesting. So when someone else says something that you have completely different thoughts about, instead of like fighting against them, you just put your own different thoughts about out there in parallel.
5: Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and I, I mean, and I mean that, that, that actually happens quite explicitly. A lot of times I have a, I have a very kind of diverse timeline now, and I, I get all kinds of different thoughts that come across my timeline that make me kind of think about things. And either I choose to be in my own space and maybe expand on a lot of thoughts that that made me have, right? Or even if I want to go and contradict things or even if I want to paint a different picture of things, I still do it in my own timeline most of the time without trying to bring those people into it directly and have them feel like I'm talking directly to them or that they're being attacked. All of that stuff is really counterproductive, to be honest. But there's still an opportunity there for me to provide a counterpoint to some of the stuff that people might be hearing. Um, And I found that to be, I found that to land super well with people. Like, I think the thing that made the biggest impression on me is that I get messages all the time and direct messages and other ways where people are like, I've never talked to you before, but I just want to let you know that you've changed so much of my perspective. Just being like a person that I kind of get to listen to passively and like you're always giving me stuff to think about, right? Um, And just really brought home to me that reality that there are a lot of people who are listening and that you can have influence on them. And the people who are like fighting hardest are like worth the least amount of your time.
3: So I have a question about how you mix. Some of the social justice stuff with your tech career, because you mentioned in the beginning that you had to kind of find the right balance for you and it took you a little bit of time to do that. And in talking to a lot of different people, I often hear, you know, they have a particular opinion or maybe they have an experience that they do want to express, but they also don't want to be like an expert on whatever this issue is and not be seen as just a developer or just an engineer. So how did how did you figure out your path in that?
5: I think I'm still struggling with that, to be honest, right? I I definitely have these moments. I used to talk a lot more about tech and I still have a lot of opinions about it, but I really am struggling because it feels like the things that I'm talking about in uh in social justice and just in the larger world, they're so much more important than the tech conversations. And I I kind of haven't found a space where I feel like I can talk about both and like give each one the appropriate amount of weight, right? I think I'm. that's something that I'm still struggling with. And I think that if I'm looking at kind of other people that i kind of run in the same circles with, I see a little bit of that too. They're like, well, the only thing I really feel comfortable talking about is the tech stuff. And like, I know this other stuff is so much more important, but like, I just, I don't know how to engage there, right? And so I think there's a little bit of that tension in the community today, um, and uh, I'm I'm struggling with it myself, so I don't know if I have, like, really good answers there. If you followed me for a while, you realize that, like, I talk about tech a lot less, right? It's still something that's a very big part of my life. I still have lots and lots of opinions on it, and yet I've kind of chosen to backburner that because the other stuff I think is so present. And so, you know, I think we all kind of go through those phases.
0: It's almost like we need a podcast about the things that are more important than the tech.
5: <laughs> yeah. I, well, so, uh, so I, I also I throw this out and I think uh, this is just me kind of uh, being really candid and taking some ownership. Like I kind of I have these people that I know and like I've either talked to them a lot online or I've actually met them in real life. and I know that they're good people and I, I like really. Care about them, and they, I'm like, they they like only talk about tech, and I'm like, how do you? I only talk about tech. Like, there's other things happening, and I never hear you actually mention them. And I have a lot of like it, it's really really silent. But I realized that it was a it was a judgment of mine that I was having a really hard time with. Right? Like, I want to see other people processing the stuff that's happening in the world to know. That they're affected, that they're human, and that they are here with us doing that. And like, when I don't, like, it makes me feel some kind of way about it, um, that I'm still trying to figure out. But I, I also, I never, I'm, I'm really kind of careful not to say anything because I know that's my issue and not their issue, right? Like, everybody is dealing with what's going on in their own ways. And, you know, Twitter may not be the place that they, uh, are comfortable being vulnerable about those things. But I think that's something that's kind of in my head today is like, Trying to figure out where everybody stands, I think that's that's where we are, right? Like, like if I'm talking to a person, like where you stand in, in the the major issues that are happening today, it's really important for how I'm thinking about our relationship. And yet, like it, it's sometimes difficult for me to pull that out or to make that uh, a thing that's known. So I'm kind of struggling with that too. I think.
4: I think that's really easy to relate to. I'm I'm thinking of. About this, like, meltdown panic attack that I had just seeing all this craziness and stuff happening around me. And it was like during Thanksgiving, and everyone on Facebook was posting about their perfect turkeys and, you know, you know, making the perfect recipe and getting everything all perfect. And I was like, how can you sit there and talk about turkeys, (laughs) you know, and I just wanted to scream at people like, how can you not see all the suffering happening around you? And I think I had that similar kind of response of just uh, some things just are more important, you know, and I had to at the same time, you know, in that moment come to terms with my own hypocrisy and that, oh, I'm the one perfecting the turkeys too. You know, I've got my own bubble of stuff that I've been living in and like, that's me too. And so I think there's two sides to it. So one, one is the, like how we cope with stress, all of us. And I think detachment is one way to do that. You know, just forget about everything going on in the world and focus on your life. And you can't really blame people for that either. And I think tech's kind of the same way, you know, it's like, you know, who, who really cares about unit testing right now? <laughs> you know, I'm just wondering in terms of you interacting with other people and seeing you know, people in different spaces like that, how, how those experiences have changed you
5: the last kind of several years where the conversations about diversity and inclusion have really grown and kind of taken center stage have been really really important for me personally i remember and like i guess for me i moved to the bay area in 2011 right and i think it was only it was a couple years after that i i would say that the conversation really was able to start about diversity and inclusion and for me it was like we can have this conversation now like i remember being like really taken aback like oh we're talking about this now we're talking about the fact that there are no other black people around ever cool i can talk about that uh i just think i thought we weren't allowed to talk about that and so uh it was a really really big change in my life uh to have people acknowledging something that had just been like the way that things were uh, for so long and like it wasn't something that I felt like was appropriate to talk about, but now we could. And so we went from being able to talk about it um, to being able to say that it was it was important and something we should strive for to being able to actually take action on it and to see things change. And like if I look at the way that things change me, it's really big to me that I I, I frequently walk into rooms uh, full of tech people and I'm like not the only black person right and like that was like a story of my life That was the thing that I would joke with people about When I talk to them about being in tech or going to this conference or doing X Y and Z right and it's a it's a thing that I think black people have kind of tried to turn it into uh, Something that we laugh about but it's really something that I think affects us really deeply where uh you know we kind of just have to accept the fact that like most people around if we're going to move towards uh where the opportunity are where the opportunity is and where the successes are then we're going to leave more and more people that look like us behind and like today i have to make that choice less and less right and i'm able to be in rooms where lots of people who look like me uh, are able to be in the room and doing the same things. And like, it's so huge, right? It's so huge for me personally, that representation matters so much. Um, and to have people be able to, to to talk to me and look at me like I'm a person who kind of inspired them to reach for more. It just has had a really profound uh, effect on, on me uh, personally, I think.
2: I'd like to talk a little bit more about inclusivity in workplaces which i think it's really interesting kind of topic that we've been getting closer and closer to as we've been talking because we were chatting about like not discussing tech and discussing these more important issues and i feel like this is kind of like now we're we're wrapping it all up in a way in, like important issues in tech and i really like that and i like this perspective that you have of kind of walking this long road and watching it as the Culture has like changed, and the scenery has changed. And I know you've spoken before on making workplaces inclusive. We had a couple uh, listener questions about this too, actually. And what would be really interesting, I think, would be to hear some suggestions about how junior devs or uh, people that are like earlier in the career, or lower in the hierarchy on things that they maybe could do to make workplaces more inclusive. Like, there's a lot of advice, I think, for, you know, senior management and what they can do from their level where they have a lot of influence. But do you think there's anything that we could suggest for younger people to help contribute to that environment?
5: That's a really good question. I want people to feel like they do have something to contribute there, uh, but it's hard, right? Like, I think if I'm kind of really thinking about your question, my initial reaction is that it actually feels really bad to me to go to them and say, you have to be the people to kind of carry this forward, right? Like, it feels like we've done so much work just to get them here. And then the first thing we do is kind of like, give it to them, like, okay, you have to help us because we have no idea what's happening. Uh, Even if that's actually true, to some extent, I think it's really difficult. And they already have a difficult job. Right. Like if we're talking about inexperienced people, they already have a really difficult job, which is to come into this space in tech where the stakes are really high. The expectations are really high. Right. There's a there's a really strong culture of, you know, kind of examining what you know and don't know. And, and you know, imposter syndrome is rampant uh, and they're trying to like make it right. They're trying to make it to get established and to make themselves feel like they're successful here. Uh, And not get pushed out, and like I find it very hard to say that we're then going to give them another job, right? (laughs) Which is helping us be more inclusive. All that said, I do want to try to answer your question, um, which was about like what advice can we give them? What can they do? And I think my answer is a lot more like probably kind of diplomatic than people would like to hear. I could I could be a lot more militant about it, but I would be doing them a disservice because it doesn't work being militant. Um, (laughs) doesn't work. I mean, at work, like in a professional space, does not work. (laughs) I can tell you stories about that, too. Uh, And so instead, um, the advice that I have for people kind of going into these workspaces is to take a stance where you want to find the right venue to talk about these things, but then be really open and transparent so that other people can see the conversations that are happening and kind of choose to find ways to, to learn and get on board. And um, I'll I'll try to be more concrete uh, because I think that's really vague. The thing that I'm seeing a lot more that I think works well is having diversity and inclusion working groups inside companies. Right. So there's a set of people who are passionate about this uh, and who want to uh, help educate and help um, make change within the organization. And they don't have to push very hard. And instead, what they do is they just create a group um, as a space for them to talk about it and to figure out what are the ways that they can try to influence the organization. And then that group can start to do things like ask for executive sponsorship, right? Like have someone from the leadership team actually come and sit in so that they can hear directly and learn. Um, Ask for things like resources, like, hey, can we make tweaks to how the onboarding works? You know, one of the big things that um, I ended up doing at a previous job was have D&I as a message be part of our onboarding for every new hire right so they would get a message about how diversity and inclusion was important to us and why and how to think about it and that's actually really important if you think about all the other ways that companies try to establish culture and how important they think culture is like putting that message along with all the other culture messages was a really big win and so my goal is to to get people to kind of get together in the company to find a way to be effective and talk about these things out loud but to make it really really practical right like talk about what you want to see happen at the organization and and make 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 real requests and not just kind of talk about the issues and expect people to figure out what you need them to do. So, I hope that that's a helpful answer. And I think that working group, once you establish it, is a really good place for new people, um, you know, from different underrepresented backgrounds when they come into the organization to find like minded people, to find support. uh, And it can be really good.
2: I think that there can also be problems with like bad attitudes that have gotten kind of stuck in an organization. And when fresh people come in and have a good attitude about something, I think there can be something very refreshing about like a younger person coming in and and kind of acting just like, of course, we're going to be understanding the people, of course. And I think that that can make people think about things differently. I read a lot of like employment advice columns and stuff like that. And one of the... Advice things that I see a lot when people are like, you know, I want to ask my boss for this thing and I think it's really reasonable is like just ask them in a way that makes it sound like you're being totally reasonable. Like, of course, I know you want to help me with this. So how can you help me? And I think if you have a lot of fresh people coming in and kind of just treating diversity and inclusion like that, like an obvious thing that we know we want to do, but how do we do it? That might just maybe take out some of those stuck attitudes if possible. Maybe that's an idealistic way to look at it, but that's kind of how I feel about it.
5: No, I I think that's a really great way to look at it.
0: Yeah, especially if a company is growing quickly and you have a lot of new hires, you can change the culture just through quantity. (laughs)
5: Yes, (laughs) yes, that's true. Uh, I also worry, though, that we... Are creating well, so maybe I should kind of phrase it more as a question, right? Because I want to hear if other people have kind of had an experience where you do manage to kind of get a a DNI conversation going. Maybe you do even manage to affect the hiring, but you bring in a bunch of people, and all the new people talking about it are like all the people who who are talking about it are the new people, right? And it starts to feel like a real kind of like kind of cultural rift to people. Right? Like the people who have been at the mm-hmm. company and they're like, oh, we're hiring all these new people and they're like they like want to have all these really uncomfortable conversations and they're really changing all the culture around D and I stuff. And I've seen that be a place for a lot of tension to arise, especially like in the way that you say, which is like they're kind of taking over, right? Like, you know what I mean? Um, And uh, even if that's happening, even if you might be kind of starting to win with quantity, those people who have been there, uh, they actually have a lot of institutional power and it can set up a lot of uh, really conflicting conversations. Like I've seen that happen.
3: I did have an experience a little bit like that. It was not at a technology company, but I got invited to this diversity and inclusion training, which was like a workshop. And being a newer person at the company, uh, the team I was on was pretty diverse. We didn't really have like discussions about it, but it was kind of known that we were trying to get as many different perspectives as possible. But when I went to the training, there were a lot of people who had been at the company for a long time, like 20 years. And this was the first time they'd had some sort of diversity and inclusion training. So it became pretty intense pretty fast. Because there were some people who were saying for the first time experiences that they had had every day that were bothering them, which made other people feel like, you know, I've worked next to you for 15 years, why didn't you ever say anything? I thought we had a real friendship. So now I don't know. I feel like I don't know who you are, because I didn't know this was even an issue. And I was just sitting there like, oh my gosh, what is going on at this company? Because I can tell that a lot of things like what you said, Marco, are kind of deep seated. And they've been around a long time. And I think it's hard to figure out how do you scrape that out and start again? Because they were trying to move in a new direction. They had done a lot of things like make these resource groups for all kinds of different groups of people, different types of populations of people that might work at the company. And those groups seem to be functioning. But I think it kind of had the problem of, okay, within our little group of like, there was an LGBT one, for instance. So within that group, then everybody there is fine. But then when you go back to your, the group that you might work in every day, that hasn't really changed. So you might feel more comfortable individually in certain circumstances, but you're not really feeling comfortable talking about this at work or, or even expressing situations that may arise and how that might not be the best way to handle it. So I think it's a really big challenged because it's not easy and I think that's why a lot of companies ignore it because it's like how do you get to that person who is senior or who's been there for a long time and may not even know what they're doing and how what they're doing is affecting people but then also how do you get to those people who maybe you're not actually doing or saying the wrong things but they're friends with those people and they don't know how to think about them now Cause it's, it's a new set of information that you're giving them about how to behave and how to think about certain things. And they don't know what that means. Like if I'm friends with this person, but they hold these views and they've expressed them before, like, how do I work with them again?
5: Yeah, that's really huge. And I really appreciate you sharing that. I think it's a really big problem. If there's something that I've also kind of had to come around to, it's the idea that even though a lot of these things are important and need to change, we can't take it for granted that people are going to get there soon and that this going to be shouldn't be hard for them, right? Like we can kind of tend to talk about it like it should be obvious or, you know, this is just the right thing and people are going to kind of um, just realize that. It actually is a journey. It takes a long time and there's a lot of discomfort that people have to go through. And when you amplify that with working relationships, right, like it's going to be tough, right? It's going to be tough. And so I think part of what I heard about kind of what you were getting at is this, thing where people who have a working relationship and all of a sudden are presented with all these really tough conversations about diversity and inclusion. And it's their same coworkers who are starting to kind of speak up about these things and, and admit that, like, they've been made to feel uncomfortable, like they've been made to feel like people are using microaggressions against them. They feel like they've been held back. And yeah, there's going to be a reaction to that. Right. Like we haven't we haven't talked about this. You haven't said anything to me like I had that problem for a little while in a different contexts when I started talking about how black people kind of have to deal with being in uh, friendships with white people. And I had all my white friends coming to me like, have I ever done anything that makes you feel uncomfortable? And I'm like, probably yes. But like, we don't have to talk about it all the time, right? (laughs) Like, it's not a thing where we have to kind of make it a big central part of our relationship. But it's like, they were having a lot harder time with it, right? Like, all of a sudden, they have to contend with the fact that like, I have not been sharing my full self with them as a way for us to be friends. Like that's that's what it is, you know. Um, there's a when we talk about privilege and and being marginalized, it's really that difference in comfort level, right? Where you can bring your whole self into a situation and feel like your whole self is going to be accepted. And when you're on that privileged side, like that's what you do, right? Like you're not holding anything back from people because nothing that you can tell people is going to be a problem. Mm-hmm. Whereas there's a there's a different kind of person. They have to actually be really scrutinous of the things that they are public about and that they share with people, and they only bring part of themselves into into all of these relationships, especially at work. And then you know when the people on this privileged side of this dynamic start to really understand that, then they realize the whole conversation that they've been having with this person now feels like it was wrong. Like it's it's like I even I've even had people feel like they feel that they've kind of been deceived, right? Like I thought we were friends, but we're not. You know what I mean? And so there's a whole journey that I think people have to go on. I don't think that it's something that we can help with, to be honest. <laughs> but I do think we have to at least acknowledge it and, and let people know that there's going to be like we have to provide space for people to kind of go through that if we want to preserve those working relationships,
1: uh, if that makes sense. Yeah. As somebody who's been the white person on that side of the conversation once or twice, I think it, for me, it's really important that I try to make sure not to fall into the trap of making my friends take care of me through that process.
2: I've had a lot of experiences with that, too. I've, I've talked about this before because I've given people advice to be like, you know, if you say something that makes someone feel uncomfortable, just like apologize and then move on. Otherwise, you get this weird, like, reverse situation where, like, I have to comfort people. Like, my friends will come to me and be like, oh, I feel so bad. I messed up your pronouns again. I'm such a bad friend. I'm such a bad person. And I have to be like, you know, I'm not mad at you for trying. But now I'm comforting you because you misgendered me. And that's really tiring.
5: Yeah. Or you have to, like, tell them how to do better. You have to, like, give them like an impromptu education class. Like here's what you should do. Here's what you should do. And like,
2: I like educating people, but I like to do it like when I feel up to it, not when I'm on demand for it.
5: (laughs) Yeah, for sure. Yeah. It's tough as a community especially kind of in non circles we don't get to talk as much about how this stuff affects personal relationships uh i've been talking a lot about it in the context of you know politics and how like people there's a real rift in people's families right where like there's so much going on right now and there's such uh, a sharp divide between people but like you know these are your family like, these are your close friends like you can't really stop talking to them you can't really like you know you, you're you're very kind of um, restricted in the way that you can kind of protect yourself from from having to have uh, some interaction with these people, and yet, like, it can be really, really, uh, it can be traumatizing, right? Like, it's a it's a real issue, and I think we need to talk more about how we can actually start to tackle these things on a personal level, right? Because, to be honest, I think the wider movement is really, really good, and it's really, really necessary, but. Each of us, like, we have the most leverage with the people we're closest to, right? The most actual power to help people understand and to um, to educate them and to help bring them along. Like, the people who are closest to them have that power. And yet that's also, like, it's the most challenging, right, for the person who has to go into that really charged situation. Um, and so I, I think there's a lot of value in talking more about it, but it's it's also tough, right?
3: I read something the other day that said Facebook makes you hate people that you know, and Twitter makes you love people that you've never met.
1: And I think that's what you're talking about.
5: Yeah, I saw that. I thought it was great. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, it was, it was really, it was really accurate. Put a really fine point on it.
1: So on that note, if I can flip that earlier question around, for somebody who like me may be at the center of the intersection of all the privileges, are there ways that I can help? Champion people and advocate on their behalf and help educate folks while still staying in my lane like are there things that you wish somebody might like me could have done for you, and I realize that for you is sort of loaded
5: <laughs> yeah no, i I hear you like what's the right way to kind of be an ally? I think is the conversation that we're having and and that's not something it's not something to take for granted like. I think allies are also having a really hard time these days, for better or worse. It's a a tough space to be in. And the stance that I take today, if, like, say we're picking context and we say we're talking about how to kind of advance diversity and inclusion at work, right, I think the right thing to do is to make sure your voice is heard in support of the people who are trying to push initiatives. Right. A thing that happens a lot is if I'm pushing an initiative that has to do with um, trying to bring more people of color into our hiring funnel. Right. I think a lot of times people are like, they choose that moment to say like, oh, that's not my lane. So I shouldn't say anything. But what that does is create a dynamic where it feels like I'm the only person that's pushing for things or like I'm the person that has to do all the work to make something happen that's not a great place to be, right? Like, I I actually, like, my goal when when I bring this stuff into a company is for it to be a company-wide value, right? That doesn't mean that everybody has to be on board. There are no kind of company-wide values that every single person agrees with. But what I do mean is that I want to know that people across the company are invested in kind of seeing these things happen because they've been set up as a company-wide value. And I think diversity and inclusion is one of those where we fall short because we allow the burden to fall on the underrepresented people, like, oh yeah, they're going to do a thing, and I'm just going to like stay out of the way and try to not to mess it up, right? Which is a stance that you can take. But honestly, like, what I think needs to happen is for everybody to show support in a way that makes it easier for act- it to actually be a company-wide activity, right? That can look a number of different ways, right? So if, if I say I want to put on an event to bring in underrepresented people and have it hosted at the, at the company, right. Then it's really great for other people who are not me to say, Oh, that sounds really great. I want to help out with that. Right. Or like, Hey, I'm going to encourage some other people to help out with that. Like, you know, use whatever privilege you have to get other people engaged. Right. So I think, like kind of letting, you know, there's a there's a thing about kind of letting people drive the initiatives and those should be the people who are definitely centered. But like we still need help. We still need like support. And like there's more than just kind of the spearhead part that goes with it. And so, I mean, just like showing up and showing support and being ready to help is it's really great. Like that's the thing that I think we need the most. Um, and it goes back to the conversation we we're having about like having a critical mass of people. Like, really gives these things momentum. And I think there are a lot more people who agree, but then feel like they shouldn't show up, right? Like, I actually, so I'll, I'll share something that I think is a little bit more concrete, which I think was really eye opening for me. So, we had a working group at a previous job, a DNI working group. And there were people who would always kind of express that they appreciated what was happening, but they didn't, they never showed up to the working group meetings. Right. And they never actually kind of volunteered to help with any of the initiatives. And I went up to, to one of, uh, one of, uh, there was a, it's was a white woman um, and I went up to her and I, I felt like I had a good enough relationship with her that I could just ask. And so I asked, I was like, Hey, why don't you show up to the meetings? Like, is there a, a problem? Like I'd really like to hear if you feel like there's something that's keeping you from feeling welcome X, Y, and Z. And, you know, what she said to me was actually, it was, I was expecting to hear a number of other things, but what she said to me was actually surprising, which is she said, no, I'm, I'm totally on board. I totally like it, but I feel like as a straight white woman, I have like almost the entirety of the privilege that we're talking about with one exception. And so I just feel like I should stay out of it because I don't actually need a lot of the thing. Like, you know, I don't want to take up space where I feel like I have a ton of privilege already. And she was seeing the group as a place where you come to get resources rather than one where you come to help and execute and actually kind of make things happen and show support. Uh, and so I think there's definitely a conversation to have about what people think the purpose of these d initiatives are and who should be involved. Right. Like we, we definitely need people to be involved. It's just like, you know, we kind of have to talk about the right way
1: to do that yeah know that's interesting that's another line that i that I have a hard time walking is trying to read a space and figure out whether it's a space for mutual support where you know if I go in I'm diluting whatever's happening there versus a place where I can show up and help
5: yeah, we had those conversations in the working group. I think it's really important to establish like the goals and the mission and governance and stuff and it's going to feel like work. Like it should feel like work if you're doing it right. But I think we try to find the balance, right? Like sometimes it is about being able to have these conversations in a space where um, people are are like-minded, but it's also about action. Like it should definitely be um, results driven, um, which is something that I think people struggle with sometimes. Like they want to spend more time on the the talking because they feel like they have a lot to learn. Uh, And that's, that's totally fine. Like you should do it, but um, it also has to be results oriented, I think.
2: If someone wanted to get involved in something like that or even start their own working group like that, do you have any advice on, like, a good place to start?
5: Meaning, like, what should the group do? Is that what you're asking?
2: Yeah, like, how, like what's a good thing to, like, focus on in the beginning and, and if you have any advice on how to organize?
5: So advice on how to organize, like it really only takes just having a meeting, right? And the the way, I think the way that you socialize it matters. Um, I think you kind of connect with people individually who you know to be like-minded and you shop that idea around with them. Um, And then you um, go to people that you, people that you think are allies or that you can at least trust to have the conversation with. You talk about them, you you go to people in leadership and you have that conversation with them to know that they are, A, not going to, be obstructive, right like if if that conversation doesn't go well, you know uh, there's it may be a challenge um, to start a group um, but if they're on board and 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 they're supportive, then you kind of like ask about the right way to kind of broadcast so you can tell people like hey this is happening it's totally optional, but like just show up, we're gonna kind of have our first meeting and talk about what we want to do right and I think the first couple of meetings are just gonna be about like getting to know why people showed up and what their expectations are, right. And then you can kind of go from there. You're going to have a, a, a plethora of people who show up for different reasons. That's okay. But, you know, start to kind of establish what you think the group is about and what you want to see happen, right? Like The, the primary thing, I think, to ask and to kind of go around the room uh, is like, what do you want to see happen at the company uh, around DNI, and i And that should help drive a lot of things.
1: So we mentioned at the top of the show that transition that you've gone through from web developer to director of engineering. And uh, I'm wondering... As you've gone through that journey, how has that informed your approach to how you advocate for DNI?
5: Oh yeah, no, it's a it's a big shift, right? Um, I believe that managers and just leaders at the organization are like they have the most leverage, like they have the the most kind of institutional power to make these things happen, to make them uh, acceptable, and to 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 really drive action, right? Um, And I think when I became a manager a lot of my kind of impetus for doing that was so that I could see the things happen that I cared about the most. It's not because I really wanted to be a manager. It's not because I really wanted, like I felt like it was a kind of great promotion or whatever. It actually felt terrifying to me. And also I was really sad that I didn't get to program as much. Like it was a really kind of bittersweet transition. But um, when I was thinking about it, I was like all these things that I care a lot about. Like there's a moment I think where if you care a lot about something, you may have to decide that you should do it. Right Like, if there's a problem and you want to see it get better, like that might mean it's your job. so I, I had to really kind of take responsibility for that and then like figure out like how to use that leverage as a manager. So the thing that changed to your point directly is that I went from kind of advocating for things to putting myself in a position to say yes, right. Like, that is what you can do that is that is fundamentally different as a manager, is that you actually control resources and that you can you can be the person to say yes. And so, uh, and because a lot of times, you know, when we're talking about companies, a lot of times it is kind of individual contributors who want to see things happen, and they are talking to leadership. They are talking to the company. And, you know, I think it's great if you can kind of get the executive level people involved. Uh, it's great to have that kind of like buy in at the executive level, but they're not gonna do things. Like they have a whole job of running a company. They're really busy, right? Like they're not gonna actually show up to make things happen. They're just gonna say, Yes, this is awesome. Like do things. I will I will report it. I think that um as a as a manager like on my team, in my department, or however, you know, however wide I feel like I can stretch my influence. Like I show up and just try to say yes to things so that they can move forward. Um and that's kind of my direct contribution to making these things happen. Um, you know, the upside of of being a manager is that people don't tell you not to do things, right? Like as an IC, you can like have all these initiatives and you can try to carry them forward and somebody's gonna be like, "Mm, I'm not sure that's the right time or, you know, they're gonna give you some some pushback and you you learn to recognize that institutional pushback. Uh as managers, we don't have that problem. Like I can do things and I can have other people do things. And I was like, yeah, like I'm I'm telling them, I'm pushing them forward or whatever. I'm sponsoring them, right? Like I'm the person who's kind of advocating for this. And it's much harder for people to shut me down. Right. And so, you know, it's just a, a big part of when I when I tell people kind of how to make DNI work at their company. If your management layer, right, like that that middle management layer, like you know, above IC but below like the executive team, if they're not engaged, it's gonna actually be really difficult to make things happen. Uh, And so, you know, I do my part there by by showing up at that layer and saying yes to things.
3: So this is the time in the show when we have reflections and we talk about something that stuck out in our conversation. Way back at the beginning of the show, Marco said that a
0: while ago, he felt he had the right to speak for other underrepresented groups. But then he decided he didn't. He can only speak for himself. And this illustrates like why diversity inclusion is so hard because it's not one thing. You can't just like, be more accommodating to not white men. You have to be more accommodating to women. You have to be more accommodating to black people and you have to care about LGBT. And that's not just one group. <laughs> Diversity is inherently about a lot of people. And that is one thing that makes it so hard. And so I really like the part about if you start a group about this, start by listening to people, lots of people.
1: One thing that stuck out for me, again, towards the beginning of the show, uh, Marco, you were talking about your your transition and how you found your lane, and you said a couple of things that really stuck out for me, which were uh, making sure I was seen as a person who was having these conversations, and then you talked about being just in it to not be wrong – Um, And both of those are are traps uh, that I fall into all the damn time. Um, So I'm I'm really glad to have those named and to have a little bit more of a specific label on it than just plain defensiveness, which is the category that I feel that those fall into, at least for me. So thank you very much.
4: One of the things um, I've been thinking a lot about with this sort of results oriented approach is this difference between training and teaching and educating about things versus putting together a working group to actually get things done and supporting that working group to actually get things done. So I wanted to thank you for that. I think in general, we need to shift the way we think about education and putting all of these type of things that we do into actionable results oriented things like thinking about what type of company we want to have? What type of world we want to live in? What type of community we want to live in? And what's it going to take to get there? And how can we start putting working groups in place to actually get us wherever it is we want to be and then support those groups, you know? One thing
2: that I really took away from this is the idea that it's okay to be wrong. And that got brought up earlier in the context of like, you can admit you're wrong, and that's okay. Um, but I think there's even a flip side of it where I've been in situations where like, I'm so afraid that I'm going to be wrong that I don't want to do or say anything. And it's just paralyzing that like, I'm going to post something and someone's not going to like it. And a people don't have to like everything I post and b if someone doesn't like it and they say something that makes me change my mind about it, I'm also allowed to change my mind about it. And That's why I think what both Marco and Sam said about sincerely apologizing, being a superpower, is uh, really true. And I'm going to think more about that and practice that, I think. And then maybe I won't live in such fear of being wrong.
5: Just as an aside, it does take a lot of practice. (laughs) Like Giving sincere apologies actually feels terrible for a while, and then it actually feels great. So, (laughs) yeah, I, I, I definitely recommend practicing.
3: I think what I got out of our conversation is how hard it is to be who you want to be or be the person that you think you are in a world where it feels like people are constantly taking sides. You want to speak up. You want to have some, something to say. You want to support the right people. You don't want to just be on the sidelines, but then sometimes maybe being on the sidelines is the right place until you understand what's really going on and that it's, it's hard. I think there's a lot of conversation about authenticity and how great it is to just be yourself all over the place and everywhere and not enough recognition of how hard that is to be yourself everywhere. And that it comes with consequences. I mean, maybe it shouldn't, maybe, maybe we should be accepting of people, but I think that's kind of why everybody is up in arms is because that's not the truth of how you live in the world. And so I think what I get out of that is just because you're struggling to deal with that doesn't mean you're doing something wrong because it is hard And that everybody doesn't have it figured out but you.
5: Yeah. Wow. That's that's great. I love it. Thanks so much for having me. Um, I really, really enjoyed this conversation it's really great to dig into some of these things, you know, with a smaller group of people where we can really expand on some of these ideas. And it's it's also super helpful for me to hear other people's thoughts come together in reflection to my own. So uh, I really, really appreciate the opportunity. And I just wanted to say thanks. In terms of reflections, the thing that I think is sitting with me that I'm definitely going to take with me is the reminder and what we talked about and how these dynamics play out for people who aren't fully engaged with the DNI conversation yet. I can be really kind of strident in a lot of ways in challenging people to get better at this and to really learn about it and to do better, but I also try to balance that with a certain level of empathy, right? This is actually a really hard journey to go on uh, for everybody, you know, and I've I've been on it myself in in different ways. Like, you know, I have a lot of axes of privilege for myself, and I think that it's really easy to lose that empathy for the people who are experiencing things changing really rapidly around them. Whether their anxiety comes from the right place is worth talking about, but that doesn't make it not real. <laughs> you know it doesn't make it not valid that they have a journey to go on and that it's it's uh it can be jarring and uh, difficult for them and i think it's just a good reminder because we also have to kind of deal with the consequences if we don't acknowledge the importance of that like that's why it's hard right like that's why we're on opposite sides because uh we have made things very difficult in a way that is difficult it, it's harder for people to kind of come along And so, you know, that's just the recipe for a conflict. And I think it's something that I'm thinking about a lot because there's a set of things that are important to me that um, I'm not going to back down from and that are not going to be uh, that I'm not willing to compromise on. But at the same time, I'm really worried about the conflict, right? Both in the wider space and just in kind of the tech community, right? Like I, I don't, I don't want, my life to be kind of, kind of fighting with people on the other side. Like, you know, I kind of mentioned before. And so we kind of have to find a way to find that space. We have to find a way to allow people to go on that journey in a way that doesn't cause them to kind of dig in their heels and entrench. Um, you know, cause we, we still have to be human with each other, right? Like that's, that's really the goal of it to me is for us to all be learning how to be better humans. And that means everybody, right? Like not just not just us so um i I feel like i have some more thinking to do about whether i'm kind of really living that today but i really appreciate it it got me thinking
0: awesome
1: all right well thank you very much marco for coming on the show we had a really wonderful time and uh thanks listeners we'll be back at you soon